and so that has been kind of the the point. And um, if you if you kind of didn't if you kind of didn't get it last week, I'm going to try and drive the nail a little bit further um, today. And without even without even trying to be sneaky about it, you know, just say that um, the people around us are always more important than the political positions that we hold. And the way that we treat the people around us are always more important than um, the advocacy for a political position or platform or policy or whatever. Always, uh, Jesus was always, 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 always more concerned with the people around him than he was upholding a um, an, uh, uh, an, an infrastructure, whether that would be a religious infrastructure or a political infrastructure or anything, but was concerned about, all right, are the things around us, are they, are they encouraging us, helping us, inspiring us to be more loving to even the people that we disagree with? Um, and so as a reminder, kind of the, the three main points from last week, here is the the synopsis from last week. Number one, the main question that we asked ourselves was, can we, can you, can we disagree politically and still love unconditionally? Meaning, can we be on the opposite side of the spectrum? Since we're talking about politics this week, let's just say it's a political spectrum. Can we be on opposite sides of the political spectrum? Maybe super ultra-conservative, super ultra-liberal, super ultra-republican, super ultra-democrat, whatever the case may be, right? And still love each other. Can we, can we love one another and disagree significantly about things? Um, number two, uh, a divided polarized, arguing Christian community jeopardizes the message of God's love to the world. This is why Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 that when he was praying to the Father, he prayed that his followers would be one in order to communicate God's love, the message of God's love to the world. We read that out of John chapter 17. And so the, the way in which you and I love or don't love one another sends a message ultimately about the love of God to the world. Remember we said that our, on, um, on Tuesday, or whenever it is that we will actually find out, right, the, the person that you vote for may, may win, the person that you vote for may lose. And in a manner of speaking, right, that win or that loss will last for one day, right? Well, hey, you won. Great. And now we're moving on, right? Or you lost. Great. And now we're moving on, right? But the church will win or lose every single day from now until the day that Jesus comes back. If we don't get our act together loving each other and loving people even in the midst of political disagreement. Right? Because our, our love for each other, our love for the world, right, is a, is a message that either divides and polarizes or unites and brings together. And uh, finally, from last week, a review from last week, Christian unity is culturally disruptive and weird because it sends the message that Jesus and all things in Him supersedes and rises above everything that the world uses to polarize and separate us. And so when those in the Christian community can be united under the banner of Jesus Christ, united under the banner of love for each other, love for God, and love for the world. It is a culturally disruptive type of unity because the world does not know. The world does not know how to be in loving relationship with each other 
if you disagree so significantly about things. And so the unity displayed in the community of faith disrupts culture by looking and being weird. Because as Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that, that in Christ, right, there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no slave or free, there is no male or female, you are all, we are all one in Christ Jesus. That, it, that, that in Christ Jesus, the things that have classically been like the, the, what the world uses to separate and polarize and divide, right, are now, are now brought low because the banner of Jesus Christ is brought high. And that is what ties, welds us together. I was having, um, I was having some uh, conversation this week, and um, you know, I kind of last week let you into a little bit of a, where I was intending to go with the message this week. And I'm, I'm going to kind of take a little bit of a different um, angle at it after having some conversations with staff and some friends and in our small group on Wednesday night just about this stuff. Um, and there seemed to be a, like, um, there seemed to be this, uh, you know, when you say, can we love or are you willing to love unconditionally even if you disagree politically, there seemed to be this tension, understood tension, an understood tension between wanting to and not knowing how. Right? Like, do I want to love people that I, that I, agree, that I disagree with politically? Oh, heck yeah. But I don't, know if, I don't have any idea where to start. I don't, know, I don't know what that, I don't even know, I don't know what that looks like. Like, I'm, I'm not sure how to bridge the gap between a desire to love and maybe like just a practical expression of love. And I, what I want to say is I, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I don't want to oversimplify it, right? I don't want to, I don't want to say that there's no tension there, right? That it's easy. Because I understand the tension and I understand the complexity of loving people deeply or loving people um, in a Christ-like way when you may hold positions politically, socially, whatever the case may be, that, may, that, that cut down into the, into the core of who you are, right? And that, and that you see as being both deeply political but also deeply spiritual. Um, and so... This is not an attempt to say, well, it's really easy. You just got to do this. But it is maybe a, um, a, uh, a reminder, right, that we are not left without some practicality of what it means to love and disagree at the same time. Or, or what, is, what is my posture towards a person that I disagree with politically no matter what? Maybe that's the better way of putting it. Like, all right, I disagree with this person politically. How, how then shall I interact with them? Um, and that's kind of one of the things that we're going to get into. All right? Uh, now, the, the question maybe, uh, or so, not the question maybe, but a kind of a rhetorical question. Uh, would it surprise you? Would it surprise you to find out that the Apostle Paul, when writing the letter to the Corinthians, and writing the, you know, the famous chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, it does not boast. That he was not providing pastors with just some good material to use at weddings. Right? Would, it, would it surprise you to hear that very likely, Paul did not have in mind at all a romantic type of love shared between a husband and wife when he was writing 1 Corinthians. I mean, classically, we say, oh, love. Oh, yeah, husband and wife. Let's read it at a wedding. 
Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, keeps no record of wrongs, right? It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth, it always protects, always hopes. Now, does that apply to our, does that, does that type of love apply to the relationship between a husband and wife? Well, yeah, absolutely, of course it does, right? But was Paul writing it exclusively to communicate the, the type of romantic love that exists between a husband and wife? Well, no, absolutely not. He was actually um, writing it to talk about the relationships that people had in uh, the worshiping community. That the whole context of his letter to the Corinthians is not about, hey, um, I'm going to give you some wisdom on marriages. It's like, no, I'm going to give you some wisdom on living with each other when you think person A is an idiot and person B is a moron. Or you think like you have better theology than this person, or you're more faithful than this person, or you're more gifted than this person, therefore, you can be a jerk to them. And Paul was like, actually, right? You can be the most significantly gifted person in the entire room, but if you have not love, he says, you are no better than a cymbal that just clangs or a gong that just goes off. You're just making noise, but you don't... The noise is annoying. You see, instead of, instead of politics or whatever, really, instead of, but we're talking about politics, instead of politics being the filter by which we see everything, by which we interact with this person or that person, instead of politics being the platform on which we stand, um, when we take into consideration the entire context of Scripture, both Paul's writing here and the life and ministry of Jesus, the platform on which we stand in relationship with each other is always been and always will be love. That's what it's always been. That's what it will always, always will be for the Christ follower. That love becomes the platform on which we stand. Love becomes the policy on which we are passionate about. Love becomes the party that we will stump for. It's love. It is the platform on which everything else in all of our life is built. Is love. So when we look at people through the lens of love, things change. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to begin here this morning. Just pretend you're at a wedding, okay? 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 1. And now I will show you the most excellent way if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have, the, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor... I surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love. I gain nothing. I'm going to stop here, right? Because I want us to hear something. I want us to not skim over that and, and not grasp onto an understanding of what Paul's communicating there in the first three verses. Because he, he essentially says, Paul, Paul essentially says, hey, if you have perfect theology... Like, you believe everything as orthodox as orthodox can be. 100% perfect theology. You, you're, it's rock solid, bulletproof. If you are able to articulate in significant ways your faith, right? 
if you have ex- extraordinary belief in God, if you have, if you have, if you have faith that, that can literally move, you're the most faithful person in your circle of like, in your circle, your network of people. If you have all of those things, but you, but you don't have love, like those things, those things are not translating into real world relationships, then, then if you have all of those things, but somehow there's a block between what you have, like in terms of the depth of your faith, or the, the complexity of your theology, or um, the greatness of your leadership, whatever you want to call it. If you have all of those things, but it's not making its way to other people, then what do you actually have? Paul says, you have nothing. Imagine. Imagine, as Paul says, having a faith which enables you to literally move mountains. Imagine that you have a level of generosity in your life that allows you to give all that you have to the poor. Imagine that you are so passionate about your faith that you would surrender your body to the flames. Imagine if you had such spiritual capacity that you had the gift of prophecy, that you could fathom all mysteries, that you had every bit of knowledge, Paul says. But it was not translating, none of that was translating itself into the real world relationships of your life. Then all that you have amounts to actually nothing. Well, then the question then becomes, well, well, Paul, well, what else is there? If I have great theology, right? If I have tremendous spiritual gifts, if I am being super generous on all occasions to the people all around me, if I am willing to, to literally surrender my life um, in the cause and the work of the gospel, hey, what more do you want from me, Paul? Isn't that like, doesn't that uh, encompass modern day, like, faithful Christianity is just be a person of deep faith? Paul says the thing that, um, the thing that is higher, the thing that is better, the thing that is greater, the next seven verses, or the next three verses, let me read them for you, then we'll go through them. Love is patient. Love is kind. I'm in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So what else is there? What else is there about life besides having perfect theology and tremendous spiritual gifts and being super generous and being willing, um, being willing or having faith that can move mountains or being willing to sacrifice who you are physically for the sake of the gospel? And Paul says, well, I don't know, how about displaying patience? What about being kind? How about refusing the temptation to envy? But not boasting in who I am. Or, Or rejecting pride. Here's one. What's better than 
what's better than perfect theology, um, great spiritual gifts, and faith that can move mountains? Um, how about not being rude? Being selfless, right? Not 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 self-seeking, not being not being easily angered or worked up. How about this? How about keeping no record of wrongs? How many of us have cataloged all the wrong that this person has done to me? All the wrong that this person has done to me? All the wrong that this person has done to me? Right? Or, or, or not delighting in evil, but, but rejoicing in truth. Love is always protecting. There's always trusting. There's always hopeful. There's always persevering. How do we love a person unconditionally that we disagree with politically? How about being patient with them? How about being kind? What about not being rude? Not looking out for my own... What about looking out for their interests? What about refusing to catalog in my mind all of the wrong things about their life? Or how about rejoicing in the truth of God in them? How about refusing the temptation to dive into anger the minute they say something I don't like? Admitting, rejecting my own pride in a moment of admitting that, hey, I might not be looking at this right. I don't know. I could be wrong. How do we love someone that we disagree with politically? You see, when we see people through this lens, when we see people through the lens of love, we display our belief and we display the witness of Scripture that people are infinitely more precious to God than your potentially flawed political view or perspective. People are infinitely more precious to God than your potentially flawed political view or perspective. Well, I don't really think my view is flawed. Um, okay. I'm going to be patient and kind with you. You're not rude. <laughs> We're all, right? See, because here's what, what, what we witness. Um, here's what we witness. We witness this um, popular cultural thing in the midst of political, social, personal disagreement. You know what? When we disagree with someone or when, the, when, when there's disagreement, one of the most popular cultural things to do when you disagree with someone is what? Cancel them. Canceled. Sorry. Canceled. You hear, you hear like the world, the, the, the term cancel culture? Like, oh, someone, I, I dug up this blog post that someone famous wrote, or a tweet that they, whatever, you know, like six years ago, they said something um, inflammatory, and we dug it up, you know, in the archives of the internet, and then we say, hey, look at what they said six years ago. Cancel their show, right? Nothing good can come from them. Scorched earth policy, right? What 100% 
um, wipe them off the face of like all the internet. Like it's over for them. Disagree politically, disagree socially, disagree spiritually, disagree with them. Well, they're 100% canceled. Nothing to say. Don't want to hear it. Um, you should lose your job. You should lose your livelihood. You should, you should lose your reputation. You should lose everything. In like, maybe even like in a legal way, um, you know, Pete is probably dying a thousand deaths for me to talk about anything having to do with the law, right? But there's this thing like, um, there's this doctrine called fruit of the poisonous tree. Right, where, where maybe evidence in a case is gathered in a way that is unconstitutional. I know I'm really oversimplifying, or like really simplifying it, right? Is maybe gathered in a case that is unconstitutional, but may, may um, produce a conviction, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter if the evidence would produce a conviction if it came by a means that was illegal. The evidence is null and void, right? And, and that's kind of what we do with people, right? We, we, declare, we declare them fruit of a poisonous tree, where if, if, if one thing happens that we don't agree with or we don't like, or that is, is not appropriate to our, our sensibilities or our morality or our beliefs, then the whole tree is poisoned and must be cut down. I mean, nothing good that comes from that. I want to tell you that um, cancel culture and fruit of the poisonous tree, however you want to call it, is an absolutely um, gospel void principle. We, we, should, we should have nothing to do with cancel culture. As, as gospel-centric people, Jesus-centric people, cancel, canceling people, right, um, is antagonistic to the core message of, scripture, of the gospel. And so as, as believers in Jesus Christ and as people who stand on the foundation that is the gospel, how do we love someone unconditionally if we disagree with them politically? One of the ways that we can do that is to reject the cancel culture that tells you that one thing, two things, or even a thousand things that you don't like or don't agree with is grounds to ridicule, to be rude, to be unkind, to catalog all their wrongs. I don't have to be patient with this person anymore. I don't have to work for their good. I don't have to rejoice or delight in the good things in their life. I can, I can put them on blast for all the things that they've done wrong. I can, I can jump from being completely normal to instantly angered because of the one thing or the two thing or the thousand things that I don't agree with them about. I can, I can cancel my gospel attitude towards them if I don't agree. This is absolutely un-Jesus-like. This is absolutely 100% antagonistic to the Scripture. You see, the, the reality is, is that if my life, if your life, if our lives were cherry-picked, like we cherry-pick those who disagree with us, we'd have to cancel ourselves. There's an interesting little section of Scripture in the Gospel of Luke where the disciples... I'll flip over to Luke chapter 9. Did you know that the disciples were all about cancel culture? 
as they were learning to follow Jesus, as they were learning what a, like a Jesus ethic, Jesus-centered ethic of life was all about, that they were, they were all about canceling people. Um, now, you've, you've heard probably in, in various places and in various stories about um, the, the tenuous relationship between Jews and Samaritans. Right? That Samaritans and Jews did not get along. That they were, that they were antagonistic to one another. That they, were, they, would, they would butt heads. They had significant theological and even political um, differences between them. And, and as such, they would, they would be always like this. That's why, that's why the parable of the Good Samaritan is so significant, right? Because the Samaritan is the one that helped the Jew when the religious people passed him by. But Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. So, wow! But, but the disciples, in the midst of understanding the tension and disagreement that Jews had with Samaritans, ran into a little opposition with a group of Samaritans once, and then was like, hey Jesus, let's cancel them! Luke chapter 9, verse 31, I'm sorry, 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem because he was a Jew. Right? When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Jesus is like, hey, just go ahead, go on ahead into the Samaritan village, right? Get things, you know, grab some supplies because we're going to be going into Jerusalem. We'll have the Passover, right? So the, they went on ahead, right? They tried to get these things. Oh, you're a Jew? Oh, you're heading into Jerusalem for um, the Passover? Uh, sorry, out of town, right? Get like, skirt around the area of Samaria like was customary, right? And, and uh, be on your way, but you'll find no help here. And, and James and John were like... Um, let me speak to your manager, please. Um, right? Like, Jesus, do you realize, did, did you realize that they said no to us? Did you realize that we tried to get it done and they said, they said no, right? And so what do the disciples want? The disciples wanted immediately Jesus to authorize them to call down fire from heaven to destroy them because the Samaritans refused to agree with politically, spiritually, or theologically. Um, they, they refused agreement. And what does Jesus say when the disciples want to institute a cancel culture against those that disagree with them? What was Jesus' response? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. The word, the word um, rebuke here is the same word that is used all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Gospels, when, when Jesus is said to be rebuking demons, rebuking evil spirits, re re rebuking Essentially, uh, ideas, principles, prospects, platforms, policies, people that were antagonistic to the central message of God's love for them. That Jesus turned even to his own disciples and rebuked them for the insinuation that because a person didn't agree with us, 
We're going to call down fire from heaven to destroy them, right? And that's essentially what we want to do, right? What the, what the culture tells us is acceptable to do when we disagree with someone is just cancel them. Just, they're canceled, right? Take down their social media, right? No more TV show for you. Um, nothing that you say is good. Um, I, I don't believe any, like, completely negates my obligation to be gospel-centered in your life. Like, done. You see, Jesus, in this situation and in every situation, didn't see a battle to be won like his disciples saw or like you and I may see. You see, you see, we see a battle to be won in the political arena, right? That man, hey, we got a there, there's a battle here to be to be waged on Tuesday, and um, whatever it takes, Christians, we gotta we gotta rally together for for our guy to to win the battle. And so we'll we'll go to all kinds of different lengths to, to win that battle in the political realm, right? We'll, we, we'll, we'll ridicule people who don't agree with us. We'll argue with them at face, on Facebook and change everyone's mind, right, by arguing with them. We'll, we'll, post, we'll, we'll post a meme here or a picture here or a snarky article here and, and we think if we just fill the airwaves with enough of it, right, that we are, we are going to show ourselves to have won the cultural battle to make sure that our political voices are heard. Be louder, right? Be more right. Be more woke. Have better perspective, right? We just gotta, we gotta, we gotta do it better than everyone else. Well, see, Jesus. Jesus wasn't above or Jesus wasn't above winning the war, right? He he wasn't above winning, right? But the but the method by which Jesus um went about winning even in the political realm was so much different than we find ourselves like wanting to fight now. We we want to fight ourselves with the anti or we want to fight with the like the anti First Corinthians thirteen perspective, right? We're going to be rude. We're not going to be patient. We're going to be easily angered. We're going to catalog everyone on the other side's wrong. We're not going to delight in any truth, but we are going to rejoice in their evil. And and that's how we're going to go about it. Well. Listen, Jesus was all about winning the battle. He was just all about winning it in a way that the world doesn't fight. You know, you know that the world says that we do not wage war the way that the world wages war. We do not, we do not fight in the same way. What was the way in which Jesus fought this battle? What, what was the way that Jesus went about to win? If we're so concerned with winning on Tuesday, right, that our person wins, our perspective wins, our platform wins, our policy wins. We want to win, 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 win. What is the way that we go about winning in a way that reflects that, that the Spirit of Jesus Christ lives in us and that we are incarnating the love of God so that we send a message to the world that, hey, God loves them and you can see the love reflected in the way that we interact with each other? What is that way? How do we win the war the way that Jesus wins the war? Let's flip over to Philippians chapter 2. This is not a new scripture for us. We've, we use this scripture all the time here. It's kind of central to some of our core values. Okay, Philippians chapter 2. Verses 3 through 11. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Step one, right? You ever, you ever teach your kids or hear the song, Jesus first, yourself last, right? And others in between? Anyone? Give me an amen if you heard it. Okay. I'll appear by myself. Yeah, maybe I just didn't sing it well enough. Uh, I'm not going to give it a second try, right? Uh, but Jesus first, right? Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. Right? How, do you, how do you win the war the way that Jesus wins the war? Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Verse 5, your attitude... Listen, <laughs> like, like Paul was like not trying to be Captain Obvious here, right? Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. And let me now show you what his attitude was like. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So in the midst of the battle, how did Jesus go about waging war? Well, certainly there was a recognition of the place where He actually stood in the heavenly hierarchy. Right? That Jesus was not unaware that he was himself God. Was himself on the, for lack of a better term, at the top of the food chain. Did not owe it to anyone or anything. He was being in very nature God. He was God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But, listen, he made himself humbled. He made himself nothing. He took on Willingly, even though he had position, right? He took on willingly the nature of a servant. He made himself nothing. He became humble and became obedient to a thing that only produced shame in the believing world. Death on a cross. He submitted himself to all of these things. Listen, <laughs> what's another way to put this? Jesus willingly took the worldly loss. He willingly took the worldly loss. Without fight, without argument, he, took, he, he chalked one up in the L, L column in, in regards to what the world would say was a win or a loss. He willingly took a loss on the world standard. And what did it produce? Well, verse 9, in following, therefore, it says, therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is where you say amen. amen. Yeah. Because, because Jesus willingly took the loss as it pertained to the world. And when he was willing to take a loss with the world's standards, he was exalted to the highest place. And, and it accomplished the most, the, most, um, the most spiritual good, the most eternal good, the most intrinsic good for everyone. That God, He was exalted to the highest place. That He was given a name above every other name. That every knee should bow and every tongue confess on heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That sometimes when we, you and I, forego when we, when we willingly forego getting the win in the argument, when we willingly forego, right, blasting someone because of what they believe or don't believe, when we willingly take the loss, Jesus ends up getting the win. When we, when we sacrifice our own win so that someone else may actually get the win. You know, it's almost like it's almost like you and I <laughs> look more like Jesus when we are defending someone else rather than we are when we are defending ourselves. Strange, huh? It's, it's almost like we, we look most like Jesus not when we're asserting our own rights, not when we're asserting what, how, 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 great we believe, how perfect our theology, how in line our faith is with our politics. Like, It's almost like we look more like Jesus when we are defending the rights of others rather than when we are asserting that our own rights be recognized and defended. Listen, loved ones, let's go back to that, that first question from, of review from, from last week. Can, we, can you disagree politically and love unconditionally? Are you willing to take a loss politically? Are, 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 you, are, you, are you willing to chalk one up in the L column? So that you may, so that you may, um, um, so that you may excel in patience with someone else. So that you may excel in kindness. That you may reject being rude. Reject your own sense of pride. That you may walk in humility. That you might not be self-seeking. That you might keep no record of wrongs. That you would rejoice in truth. That you would avoid being easily angered or not boasting. Are you willing to lose politically so that, so that love excels? And the two are not... Listen, I'm not saying... I'm not saying that they're mutually exclusive. I'm not saying that you have to lose politically in order to love conditionally. That's not what I'm saying. But if you were to lose, are you willing to let that be okay? Because losing politically, right, is nothing in comparison to the call to love unconditionally. That is what we must be committed to.
Loving unconditionally is what we must be committed to. Willingly taking a loss. Willingly taking a loss. Personally. Emotionally. Mentally. Spiritually. Politically. Willing to take a loss. Becoming obedient to death. You willing to put something to death? Are you willing to let the Lord put something in your life to death? I'll do that second question of reminder, Rachel. That a divided, polarized, Arguing Christian community jeopardizes the message of God's love to the world. This is why Jesus prayed it in John chapter 17, verses 21 through 23, that we would be united so that the message of God's love to the world would not be jeopardized. And finally, right, Christian unity, the third point from last week and kind of looks like this week, Christian unity, which roots itself ultimately in love, right? Christian unity is culturally disruptive and weird because it sends the message that Jesus and all things in Him supersedes and rises above everything that the world uses to polarize and separate us. And we see Paul talk about that in Galatians chapter 3 and elsewhere. How there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus that the love of God should abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit unites us all. Your guy may win on Tuesday. Your guy may lose on Tuesday. But Jesus will win or Jesus will lose from this day until the day He comes back based on the way that you love unconditionally even in the midst of your political disagreement. So choose the win through the method of love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning for Your Word. Every morning for Your Word, Lord. We pray, Lord, um, its continuance in our lives. We pray, we pray, Lord, for its um, rootedness in our lives. Lord, that in the midst of significant political disagreement, in the significant of any, in the significance of any disagreement that we might have, or any issue that we might have with the people around us, Lord, that we would excel in love. Lord, whether it be during a political season or not. Lord, that our, our calling is not to secure a win for our own personal positions or policies, platforms, our belief, but our calling is to secure an incarnation of Your love for the world. And so, Lord... Would you inspire by the presence of your Holy Spirit your love within us? In Jesus' name, amen.